are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is the Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that, and like you, right now. So be encouraged. And let your light shine. shine. Welcome, Shine Podcast listeners. This is Beth. Wait to pick a name. <laughs> this is Kate. <laughs> and we have the distinguished privilege today of interviewing Chuck Hamilton. Welcome, Aww. Chuck. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm excited about this. Nice to have you here. So I'm sure most of you know Chuck, but in case you're new, Chuck's been married to Lynn for 50 years. They just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. Well, we got married when we were 10, so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They have five children and 15 grandchildren. And Chuck has quite the resume. He served in the U.S. Navy, and he was also spent 33 years in quality control at the National Refractories and Mineral Corporation. At the same time, serving the Upper Room Fellowship as one of our elders and pastors for the past 34 years, and he is a Crestview Rebel Hall of Famer, Crestview (laughs) Rebel, Go Rebels. And he also, in the last 40 years, he's done a lot of studying. He's got a biblical and counselor degree, a BA, an MA, and a PhD in ministry, so he's... One smart cookie. and I don't know about that. <laughs> but we love to prepare ourselves as best we can. <laughs> yeah. He's currently the president of Harvest Preparation International Ministries, and he's training leaders through seminars, conferences, crusades, school plantings in Africa and Latin countries. He loves to run, bike, play basketball, weight lift. He's got a black belt in Taekwondo. If it wasn't for his white hair, you might think he's 25 years old, (laughs) the way he spends his time. But he also likes to work in his yard, and he has lovely flower beds and gardens. I feel like we could probably, with all of that, have about 50 podcasts just with (laughs) Chuck Hampton as our our guest. You know, as a side note, I was playing one-on-one with my granddaughter yesterday. She's a freshman, and she has really improved, and she beat me. Ooh. She said, you're easy on me. I said, no, I wasn't. Although she did talk me down once. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but it was fun. I love my grandkids. I love raising my kids, but I really love having input in my grandkids' lives. That's awesome. And if you don't know Chuck and Lynn, they, they are the epitome of what love looks like, showing love practically to their family members, grandkids, yes. neighborhoods, and the community. So they've both been a great example of that in my life. It's great to have you here. It's good to be yeah. here. So why don't you tell us what turned on your light or who turned your light on? Well, I guess we have to go back a little ways. Uh, I was raised in a dysfunctional home. <clears throat> My father was an electrician who worked in construction, so he wasn't around. And so there were four boys and my sister, who was the youngest. and uh, Your poor sister. My poor mother. <laughs> uh, you know, and so through that time, though, I was the middle child, the middle child syndrome, terribly. And when my sister was born, she was last, and my dad let it be known that this was the daughter he always wanted, this was the apple of his eye, blah, blah, blah. And I had an instant seed of jealousy and hatred against my sister. I remember one time I ran and jumped on her, broke her arm on the couch, and that didn't go over well. 
but I had to avoid my heart. And I remember as a teenager just always trying to win my dad's approval, and he just wasn't there. So after I graduated, worked for a year in construction, and then uh, I dated Lynn since we were juniors in high school. And uh, I went in the military. We got married right uh, out of boot camp. And uh, I went in the military, and I, I had this hunger. And I knew that God existed. Didn't know him. We didn't go to church once while they sent us to Sunday school. But I knew that God exists. I just knew that. And Scripture bears that out, that he places within us that moral compass and, and understanding, call it conscience, whatever you want to call it. And I remember in the military really searching and hunting for God. And I remember in boot camp, I was 20 years old, this young stud, if you would. Sorry about the terminology, but... <laughs> You know, and there was testosterone everywhere in the boot camp, you know, and everybody was buying. We had arm wrestling and everything. In the midst of that, I remember going to bed I would, that at night in my bunk. I was so lonely, I would cry myself to sleep. And someone gave me a little track. I don't know where it came from. I still have it. And this track didn't have any words in it. And uh, it was a picture. And you just looked at the pictures. It was sort of a, a little boy whose father was an alcoholic would send him out in the street every day to panhandle. We had a pencil cup. And buy a pencil, put money in his cup, and he would take it home. His dad would take the money and drink it and drink every night. Well, there was a terrible storm one day. Little boy went home. He didn't have any money in the cup. Went up the three-third story of his apartment building. His dad looked in the cup and got angry, started beating him up, threw him out a window. And he went to the pavement below and showed him dying on the pavement and an angel coming and picking him up. And when I saw that, the Lord just gave me a revelation of how much he loved me. The interesting thing is that that, that never left me. It's been a growing thing. But I never really acted upon that for seven, it was seven more years until I came to the Lord. But always knew, had an understanding that God loved me from that point on. And that just grew. And it really radically changed my life. When you said you were searching when you were in the military, were you just thinking in your head about it? Or were you asking people about God or reading about him? Or No, I actually had some Christian friends and uh, I took, I carried my Bible with me and I would read it. And I would talk to them. And I remember literally reading my Bible. And at that point, obviously I wasn't surrendered to the Lord and I was living a, you know, heathenistic life. And I remember closing my Bible and saying, not now, Lord, because I have just too much I want to do. And the too much I want to do was not the right things to do, you know. But thank goodness for God's patience. So I finally, you know, when the turning point was, Lynn and I were pregnant with Lisa when I was in boot camp. She got pregnant before boot camp. And so we got married right out of boot camp. And Lisa was our first child. And by the time I got out of the military, she was three years old. And she was with me one day. I went to my dad's farm to do some work. And my sister-in-law, Lynn's sister, was with us. And uh, Lisa was running down the lane, tripped and fell and hit her head on a stone on the ground and died instantly on the spot. That was obviously, you know, tremendously traumatic. At that time, Lynn and I went to church, but there was no reality to it. And she looked to me for strength and for answers, and I had neither one. I, I just asked two questions. I said, <clears throat> is there a God, and will I ever see my daughter again? And that sent me on a journey. In looking back at that and looking at life and how people respond, I, I realized a couple of things. One, you either turn toward the Lord in desperation or you turn away from him in anger and bitterness and you live your life that way. And it's just one or the other. And I just said to Lynn, I said, I want to know if there's a God. And I went on a journey to find him. Now, we say we find the Lord, but I have news for all of us. He's <laughs> never lost. 
We were the lost ones. So I just began to read my Bible. I wanted to find the truth. And when we're desperate, divinity appears. And I was desperate. I wanted to find the truth. And we had some loving Christians at the church we went to, the Lutheran church in and they told you they gathered around us, loved us. The pastor, his friend had been through this exact circumstance and didn't want us to fall into bitterness, and he was there for us. The church loved us. And after a two-year journey of reading the Bible and searching, I was honestly searching. I invited Jehovah's Witnesses in our house. I invited Seventh-day Adventists. I said, show me what you have. And we were really ripe to get caught up in a cult or something like that. But I read the Jehovah's Witness material, and I just said to Lynn, I said, this just doesn't make sense. I couldn't serve a God with this kind of theology. We ultimately, and the 700 Club was very instrumental for us, and we finally came to a place where we saw that, that Jesus was who he said he was. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we surrendered our life to him. It's really neat as a husband and wife. We, we did that together. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit together. And so our journey has been a spiritual walk together, and uh, our lives have never been the same. Thank goodness for the, the grace and glory of God because there were circumstances in my life that I probably should not have lived through, mm. literally. Wrecking a motorcycle, drunk, different things, and God's protection. And But he had a plan. You know, he has a destiny for all of us. We're created with a destiny and a purpose. And I was trying to destroy my destiny. I didn't even know I had one. But God knew, mm-hmm. and he, he protected us. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness. What's so interesting to me is I feel like you are probably the first person that we've interviewed when we say who or what turns on your light, but you've actually mentioned an object. You know, for the most part, when we interview people, it's, I spent time with this person or I grew up with these people or these people mentored me. But like the first thing you mentioned was a picture. Mm. Was it like a comic comic book picture? It was. Yeah, it's a little chick tracks if you've ever seen them. And uh, they're, very, they're excellent track. And again, I don't know where I got that. But the Lord, you put that in my hand and used that. It, it radically turned my life because it gave me a picture of him and his love for us. But I believe that's the life-changing formula that has to happen in our life. And that's to realize that, that God loves us unconditionally and accepts us even when we're sinners. Doesn't yes. won't leave us that way, obviously, but he, he receives us when we're sinners, when we're ugly. Not when we change or we we repent or those things. He created us and he loves us. But just so cool that he knew how you would respond to that. He put that in your hands. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not always people. Sometimes it's And they they say, you read statistically and they say a person is usually confronted with the gospel about ten times before they respond. And so you can look back over your life, and maybe you were raised as a Christian, maybe you weren't. But those who surrender to the Lord, you can look back over your life, and you can see signposts where the Lord was trying to direct you and draw you. And we often say, well, I found the Lord, but he wasn't lost. We are mm-hmm. and were. And uh, thank goodness. it is. Our lives are epitome of grace. They're a picture of grace. Well, we're really blessed that you found the Lord or God found you because you've been (laughs) instrumental in our lives. And so tell us right now, what lights you up? I can can answer that in one word, people. I just, I love to see the transformation that God brings in people. You know, we have an inner healing ministry here at the church, and I've counseled people for 35, 40 years. And counseling is good. It has a place. But we have probably seen more transformational changes in people's lives in the last five years since we've been doing the inner healing ministry. It is absolutely amazing because it is just simply bringing people into the presence of the Lord and allowing Him to put His finger on those hurts and needs and things that exist there 
wounds that we may not even know are there. And uh, out of his love, he puts his finger on that and, and just radically changes people. And so people, it's always people. That's that's one reason I'm involved with Harvest Prep. It's not so much a, because it's a worldwide ministry or because we get to do crusades with thousands. It's because we work with people and we build relationships. We, we now have, and I have spiritual sons and daughters literally all over the world. You know, we think of our own children, how much we love them. And our spiritual children are are just as loved, and they're, they become family to us. That's been one of the things with this virus. We haven't been able to travel, but we've been able to reach out and to help leaders and so forth uh, because of the situations that they live in. It's people. For meeting with uh, my friend there that I was telling you about earlier that died of cancer, uh, he surrendered his life to the Lord. And though he was in stage four cancer, it literally changed the atmosphere of that time period for him. I had the honor of doing his funeral. When I did his funeral, I just talked about some of the things in his life and how we would look at his life. We would say, well, Paul deserves to be in heaven. Things like he served in the military, coached baseball for 30 years. He was a good neighbor. He was a kind person. But those things don't open the door of heaven, only the blood of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And when Paul heard that, he was prepared. He had lived his whole life the way he wanted to. I mean, he wasn't crazy. He wasn't terrible. He wasn't mean and those things. But he had never surrendered and taken himself off the throne of his heart and put the Lord on. When he did that, it even took as trying as that was to be in the last stages of cancer. There was a peace there that allowed him to simply step from this life into the presence of the Lord. And it was a joy to be a part of that, to see that. I had never, <clears throat> I've had family that have died that way, but never been in a situation. I mean, when I asked the Lord about that divine appointment that I wanted, that was the divine appointment. And it wasn't a one-time confrontation of sharing the love of Christ. It was a commitment to Him in a way that, hey, look, I signed up to mow grass. I didn't sign up to change diapers and empty, empty urinal cups. But the Lord said, this is a part of it. And so in doing that, you know, we could make his last days much better. And the presence of the Lord prepared his heart for, to a man who will now live for eternity in the presence of the Lord. That's what floats my boat. <laughs> and I love that because when you say it's people and you love seeing the transformation of that, I think what's so moving is that you say it, but, you know, for you and Lynn and your family, it means serving. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and when you say people light me up and I love to see that, that change in them, it really means that you are willing to do whatever it takes for, for people and to serve them and love them. And <laughs> when we say people light us up, they're just the best. It doesn't mean it's all daisies and flowers and what a great time we have. <laughs> really? You know, there's a trite saying among pastors. You both would realize this, that pastoring is a great gig except for people. But the, the ones that are transformed, that makes it all worth it. Yeah. And I, I've had this, you know, we all have our passions, passions that we think about as leaders and teachers, things that we, we preach about. Every, almost everything I do has a touch of the Father's heart in it. I can't help it. It just is there. And I've often taught about the, the responsibility as believers, how we are we are to become an exact replica of the Lord Jesus. And people struggle with that. But it's really true. We are to be transformed in a way that we are degree by degree looking and thinking and acting more and more like the Lord. We're not perfect, but people need to see in us uh, something of the kingdom that draws them to us, but not really to us, to him. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. My devotions today, I was reading, uh, I have this little book, it's called The Mysteries of the Bible by Jonathan Kahn. 
And he was talking in there about Jacob when Jacob wrestled with the, with the Lord. And it said that he came face to face with the Lord. He said, I've been changed. And so he named the place Penel, which means God's face. But in there it says, I've come face to face with the Lord. The wording in the Hebrew face to face there is plural. It's not singular. You would think it'd be singular, but it's plural in Hebrew. The point he was making was this. God's face is all around us. We say that ironic prayer where we pray the, you know, the grace of the Lord and may his face shine upon you. Have you ever wondered, how does that happen? Is it an invisible spiritual thing that we don't see? I think it's much more a manifestation of those that we do see who claim to be Christ. And that's why it's so detrimental for husbands and wives or fathers who show up in church but don't, on Monday morning, don't live a life that's honoring mm-hmm. to Christ. It breeds a dysfunction mm-hmm. um, that confuses children and so forth. And so <laughs> when we, through the transforming and grace of the Lord, and it's only by His grace, can live out that life in a humble way where we're willing to recognize our inadequacies, if you will, and willing to extend forgiveness and ask for forgiveness, we begin to think and act and look like the Savior who changed our lives. And that's a challenge. Uh, When you think about that, it's not only a challenge, but it's a tremendous responsibility. If somebody looks at my life and they say, this man says he's a Christian, but look how he's acting, and I I don't live a life that reflects that. I am being, in a sense, a detriment to the kingdom of heaven. So you're segueing into our our next question of how are you letting your light shine? And I, I hear you saying, really reflecting Jesus is mm-hmm. how you're letting your light shine. How did you get to that place where you felt like you were able to reflect Jesus to people? Well, I think it began clear back in boot camp there when when the thing I was desiring and needing was I was craving for love. When God revealed that to me, you know, I began to change. You know, we, we move out of our what we believe our identity, identity is. We move out of what we our image and what we think of ourselves. And so if we think negatively or if we're dysfunctional or if we've been abused and we can't somehow come to a place of healing, then we, that radiates from us. You know, the love of Christ, as we nurture that in our lives and walk in that, it becomes, in a sense, a, a transforming ingredient that we can't help it but to do that. It's interesting in working with leaders, talked about, you know, I always somehow, it just comes around to expressing the love of God for us in the Father's heart. I, I often ask uh, leaders this, I ask them to describe eternal life for you. How do you, how do you, you know, define eternal life? Theologically, that's not hard. If you know anything about the Bible, you could say, well, Jesus died for us. He shed his blood for us. He forgave us. But the Lord gave a very clear and beautiful picture of what eternal life is in John 17, 3. And he said, this is eternal life, that you might know my Father. Now, you think about that. I mean, you think about why Jesus came, his incarnation, the plan to die for mankind, to shed his blood, to be a sacrifice that appeases the justice of God. And Jesus didn't focus on that. He was praying to the Father. He said, Father, this is eternal life that I could show them you what you're really like. When a person comes into a confrontation, a transformational confrontation with the Lord, they are never the same. You look at every person in the Bible who was confronted with the Lord, and they were changed by that transformation or by that confrontation, which led to transformation as they applied those truths to their lives. I think it's so interesting you talking about, you know, radiating, you know, when we have been transformed, the idea that we're, we're radiating the love of God. And I was thinking about my interview 
earlier, but just the idea that what was inside of me, you know, when I showed up to shine at the first time with my black hoodie on and my hoodie over, you know, hood over my head, you know, what was inside of me at the time was that was coming out that was being made very obvious. And it wasn't healthy. It wasn't radiating (laughs) health and light and Mm -hmm. goodness. And I just think it's so interesting that wherever you are, you do radiate in some way, some way. Yes, absolutely. And good or bad, right? Just how absolutely beautiful it is when we get it to radiate. Yes. The- yes. Kate and I both talked about this in the previous episodes, but, you know, growing up in the church and feeling like it was rules and regulations or we showed up and participated, but there wasn't that connection, our own connection with Jesus early on. But what would you say to our listeners who have been going through the motions or showing up or are seeking, but they just don't feel like they get the love of the Father? What what would be your advice for people who are in that situation? Well, I think the, the most important thing is for a person in that situation is <clears throat> to challenge them and to, to have them really ask the Lord, do you really love me? How do you love me? Where were you when I was abused? You know, if, if you're a loving God, why did I go through what I went through? Reveal your love to me. And, and I believe God loves a challenge that way because he wants to reveal himself. And I think, again, uh, it's not just a trite saying, when we are desperate, then divinity appears. And, and I think that's indicative of the day we live in. I believe our nation is going through a period of desperation where people are losing their health they're losing their finances. They're losing the things that they have trusted in rather than, from an eternal sense, trusting uh, the Lord who loves them and created them and the fact that they will live forever. And this life is just simply uh, a preparation for all of eternity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that, you know, if a person doesn't have a personal revelation of how much God loves them and that they have a purpose and he created them with a destiny, they're, they're losing their way. And that's, it's a struggle. When you come to that place and realize, you know, you look at the 12 men that Jesus chose to pour his life into, those men weren't uh, men who were admired and noble in the society. They were just men of society. He took them and loved them, trained them, discipled them. And then he entrusted the, the story of the gospel and of the history of mankind to them to share and pass on what they had received. And they did a great job of it. Peter died upside down. Paul, after the Lord confronted him and realized who God was and how much God loved him, gave his life to suffering. And and we know he suffered deeply. But these men would never recant what they had found because it was real. Mm -hmm. It was eternal. Mm -hmm. It was of tremendous value. And they knew. Paul said, that which I have received of the Lord, he was talking about his personal revelations, he said, that which I have received of the Lord, I didn't receive from the apostles. The Lord took him after his salvation, took him away for those three years and poured into Paul in a way that Paul received personal revelation that enabled him to fully and completely do what God had called him to do. And every man, woman, and child, doesn't matter what your state or where you're at or what you do, you have been chosen with a destiny. You've been chosen with a purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the fascinating thing. God's not trying just to get us to heaven. He wants the church to partner with him in a way that we can transform society. And so he, has, you know, he calls us ambassadors. He calls us friends. You know, he calls us his, his brothers and sisters. 
We are in this kingdom thing together with him. And he's expecting us to, with the Holy Spirit, to partner together for great, great things. Mm-hmm. And when you catch that vision, it's, it's beyond ourselves. We are just simply stepping into what we're created for. And is it easy? Absolutely not. Will the Lord challenge you in things you don't want to do? Absolutely. Your, your faith always has to be tested in order to grow. And God places things before us and says, I want you to do this. When I first accepted, or through my, I'll say it this way, through my hat in the ring to be considered for the president of Harvest Prep, and the, the Apostolic Council accepted that, after two weeks, I was sitting in my office here at the church, and I was having a moment with the Lord, and I was having, I guess we could call it buyer's remorse. I said, Lord, do you really know what you're doing? Because I knew the scope of this. One of our apostolic members is from Kenya, and Joseph came to me, and he's a man with a nationwide mantle. He came to me, and he made this statement. He said, Chuck, he said, you know it's your responsibility to take Harvest Prep to the next level. I had no idea what level we were at, let alone trying to get it to the <laughs> next level. But all God asks is, are you willing? When I, I didn't realize this at the time, when I first took over, our ministry was deeply in debt, tremendously in debt. And we're not a large organization. It was a softball curve that I had no idea. But we talked as a board, and we said, look, we're not going to stop ministry, but we're going to attack this thing. And in 14 months, the debt was cleared up. And we've moved on from there, and uh, the Lord has opened doors that we didn't realize he was going to open. We had a goal all along. We wanted to put together a Bible school. We're going to develop our own. The Bible school that met two criteria, one that it was strong academically and theologically, and secondly, that it was available to indigenous leaders who didn't have access or couldn't afford to go to Bible school. And I met the president of Nation to Nation, who, which is a, a Bible school now. And the president of Nation to Nation was a missionary for 15 years in Africa. He came home with the vision to prepare that, and he did that. And when I found out about that, I said, why would we develop our own? I looked at his Our vice president had used that material for three years in his church in Columbus. And I went to him, I said, would you sell us the rights to 75 schools in Kenya? And we negotiated that. And he said, yeah, we'll do that. And that developed a a kingdom partnership. And we took that and ran with that. One thing we did was we took that Bible school into Burundi, not knowing that Burundi didn't speak English or Spanish, which was the only two languages that the school was in. The Burundians speak Karundi, but the Lord knew they were desperate, and uh, the Lord gave us a team there, and, and that team translated the complete curriculum, all the dubovers and everything, in like 14 months, and did it for $9,000. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, it, and we now have over 4,000 students in Burundi in four years. Wow. And it's just, it is amazing. <laughs> let, let me just tell you Isaiah's testimony real quick. Isaiah is our representative in Burundi. He is a man who has a nationwide mantle. There are people like that. They just have a nationwide mantle. And he is the most humble guy. Burundi in the last 50 years has has had three different civil wars, very recent. When Isaiah was 11 years old, they were in the middle of one of the civil wars. And he left and went to Tanzania. His brother had gone there. He went to Tanzania to escape uh, the violence. And he got there. His brother was an alcoholic, beat him up and abused him. And then his brother went back to Burundi. And so there was a pastor there who put his arm around him and walked with him. There were three women who taught him how to pray. He was there for, I think, around eight or nine years and went to Bible school while he was there. It was interesting because he won a lottery. He could have come either to the United States or to Australia. was going to come to the United States because he had friends here. The Lord spoke to him and said, Isaiah, he said, I want you to go back to Burundi because I have an assignment for you. 
And he weighed that before the Lord and took the step of faith and went back. He went back and he began to visit large churches. And he was aghast at what the men were teaching because they didn't have biblical degrees, didn't have a theological foundation that they taught from their teaching out of bias or out of their personal, you know, interests and so forth. And uh, he, he went before the Lord and he said, Lord, how are we going to change this nation? He said, how can we do that? And that's when he met us and brought us together, making a kingdom partnership. And Isaiah came to Kenya. We did our our very first uh, facilitator training where we facilitate leaders to facilitate the school. We give them all the equipment, everything they need, and we train them to facilitate, and they have the Bible school. Isaiah was in that class, and he didn't say anything. He knew it was in Spanish and English. We awarded him a school. We also saw something in him. We gave him a personal gift, a sow to seed into him. And so he went back to Burundi, and we couldn't understand why the school wasn't getting off the ground. The reason it wasn't getting off the ground because they sp- spoke Karundi, and it was in English. And he went back, took the gift we gave him, didn't give it to his family. He went and he took that money and began to have the notes translated on his own. And we went back a year later, and we realized what was going on. And then the Lord put together a team. Through the team, they went through the whole course and translated it. And so we have the course in, in Burundi, and the rest is history. And Isaiah is a spiritual son to us now. We love him. And he just is a great man that God is using. They just had an election in Burundi, and they changed. the king. They have a king and queen, and they're voted in. The queen, now this is tragic, but just after the election this year, early this year, her husband died, died suddenly. And she, but she's a pastor, has a church of like 10,000 and is friends with her. The Lord just gives Isaiah favor. It's just, it's amazing to be a part of and to see the Lord preparing the nations. This is all happening because God's preparing the nations for his coming. And uh, it's just amazing to see what the Lord is doing. You know, in nations like Rwanda, and we know about the genocide and, and the civil wars in, you know, Burundi, lives, you know, endangered. And the rebels would come and kill families and steal their crops and steal their animals. And it just was was heinous. But God had a plan. And he used a man like Isaiah to bring that about. That's so. amazing. We could sit here all day, and I'm sure you have stories that would blow our socks off. But I think what's fascinating, Chuck, is that, you know, you were at a, you're in a time of life where you could have been retiring, you could have been taking the easy road and just doing all your runs and bikes on your own. But (laughs) you stepped into a role, you know, a president of an international organization. And um, I think that that is amazing. And for those of you who are feeling like your time is up, or it's you're dried up, or you don't have anything to give, I think Chuck is a great example of it's just a new phase and mm. God, you know God's calling you and walking with you and you continue to have an influence and even mm. though your seasons have changed and you're stepping into new roles that he never doesn't ever want us to slow down well maybe not slow down but he doesn't want us to be like that's it I'm done I'm going to pass it on to the next generation but you're you continue to pursue and raise up more men and women mm-hmm with um, a kingdom mindset and teaching and training them. So that that's amazing. And so... And we continue to discuss. I mean, I feel like it hasn't been maybe purposeful, but I feel like every time we get together to do a podcast, we end up talking about mentoring. Yeah. And I feel like we're back here again. Mm-hmm. And this is important. Ministry always flows out of the local church. It, it's always that way. God uses the local church, especially the Let's call it the remnant church that is totally devoted, committed, and surrendered to him and his purposes, following the Spirit of God, and not just a a form or religion. 
the value of the, the, the local church is you can't overestimate it because out of the local church, God moves. He raises up leaders. You know, he raises up people. And that flows out of the local church. And it, it becomes then a part of the kingdom, the kingdom work. We've always at the upper room and the new young leadership we have now walks this out. And that is partnering together with other churches, partnering together with the community, being active in the community, you know, uh, doing practical things that out of the, the, the heart of the kingdom touches the community. And the community needs to see that. They need to see a church that's alive and vivacious and is seeing people transformed and changed. And it's it's amazing. And it's it's the work of God and it's the hand of God. And I'm not one of the primary leaders at the upper room now, but this is always home for us. Lynn and I love love our home. We love the leadership team and the excellence of our leadership team. I've always had a tremendous understanding. Uh, I took over kind of the lead spot in 2002, and I oftentimes hear, hear leaders say, well, in my church or in my church or in my church, this isn't our church, it's his church, and we are just simply guardians of it for a season. And it's exciting. We probably six or seven years ago, our leadership team purposed to say we need to raise up the next generation of leaders. We need to do a better job of that. And we have Kate and we have Chris and we have others who are coming. And we also have seasoned leaders like Bruce and and Greg who have tremendous wisdom and insight. And it's just a picture. And and I I guess one caution I would say to, to people and to leaders in the church is don't underestimate the golden ones in your church. They have a wisdom and an insight right. that they've had through life. You can only learn through life and draw upon that. I have my good friend, David Thomas, who's near here. He has Victory Christian Church. They have seven campuses and 7,000 people. Uh, David has stepped back right now and he's in a season now where he isn't the primary CEO, but his goal and he, I just talked to him recently. We spent some time together. His goal right now is to mentor and to train men and women for leadership. And he has a lot to give. And it's probably the most effective part of his ministry. And when we can pass something to another person and commission them and hold them up and stand with them, they will go above and beyond where we're at. It's part of the cycle of life, I guess, to quote the animated film. <laughs> the Lion King. <laughs> yeah, yeah, The Lion King. <laughs> but it's, it's a part of our our responsibility. My heart is, I don't want to die sitting on the couch watching the Steelers lose. <laughs> I, I want the Lord to use me until I'm used up and then take me by the nap and neck and say, come home. Yeah. Well, you are a great example of that. And yeah. we're so blessed that you are choosing to keep this your home, even though you're, well, once Corona's over, you're traveling more mm-hmm. and that you're a part of us. And mm-hmm. so thanks for your time today and sharing your expertise and your insights. And is there anybody, anything else that you want to say or tell us? No, just, uh, I just appreciate, you know, the upper room. I appreciate where we're at. I love the upper room. And I've always been aware that the upper room was born out of God's heart. And he has protected us through some, you know, difficult times we've gone through, but this is his. And if we continue to follow his spirit, God's going to continue to do great things and to use the, the church here the way he always does for those who are willing to take a step of faith and to be obedient and follow his spirit. It's a great formula for success. That's great. Well, thanks, Chuck. Hey, you're welcome. Yeah, Amen. You. Appreciate being here. And uh, love bragging on our Heavenly Father. He's a great father. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen.